outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 278. And today, we are catching up on all the latest going on with public lands in North America with Lantani of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today on the show, I'm joined by Land Tawny, the CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And my goal today's episode was to get everyone an update on where things stand with public lands right now. Now, if you've been following this podcast or myself or a great deal of other folks in the hunting and fishing community over the past few years, you are likely very well aware that there's been a lot going on with public lands. There's been a lot of controversy, a lot of worry about the future of these places. Uh, Some of you probably remember, let's go back to 2016, for example, with the takeover of the Mail Hour Refuge, an armed takeover in which a bunch of folks took over this piece of public land and started making a bunch of demands, including that they wanted public lands given to states or private owners. You might have heard about this larger issue that this was a part of called the land transfer movement, which was being pushed by a certain group of politicians and lobbyists trying to get all of our federal public lands, national forests and BLM ground and wilderness areas and things like this. They wanted that given away or transferred away or sold off. Uh, You might have heard about this big debate over national monuments um, and what led to eventually two national monuments being significantly slashed. Um, You might remember Representative Jason Chavez proposing a bill back in, gosh, I think it was early 2017. He proposed this bill to sell more than 3 million acres of land that you and me could previously hunt or fish or camp or hike on. And then this huge pushback that we as a hunting and fishing and and outdoor community kind kind of put back on it. All this has been going on over the past few years. Uh, We've talked about it quite a bit on the podcast. I've talked about a whole lot on my social media platforms. And it's it's an issue that has been um, of great interest to me personally because of, you know, how special public lands have been to me and my family and to, to so many other people we know, but also because of because of the really positive example that I think that this battle of sorts has shown um, as far as how we as a community can stand up. 
Um, I mean, I just think it was, it was incredible to see the number of people in the hunting and fishing world get informed and then engage in this issue to make sure that we have wild and public places left for all of us to enjoy across the whole country. And I mean, I, I, I get really, I get really pumped about this, but this, this idea of public land, this land that's open to all of us. I mean, I just, how can you not get fired up about that? You know, land access is getting harder every year. And, you know, I'm talking private land access for hunting in particular, which is probably most relevant to, to you and me, maybe as deer hunters. Um, and because of that, more and more hunters are turning to public land, trying it out. And realizing that, hey, there are some pretty awesome opportunities. I mean, I, for example, I've been doing this now for a number of years. And this year, I'm planning either two or three out-of-state hunts. And it's all going to be on public land. And I guarantee it's all going to be a whole lot of fun. And you guys are going to hear all about it. There are so many great things that we can do on public land. Not to mention, not to mention these are places that you, you just don't have to just hunt. But you can go hike, you can fish, you can camp, you can kayak, you can forage, you can climb, you can just walk around and explore. I mean, this public land idea, this this democratization of food and resources and, and scenery and space, solitude, I just don't think there's anything more American. And it, the fact that over the last 100 years, plus 100 plus years, really, We've been able to develop this system of places that are protected for for us to use now, but also for future generations. And then the fact that still today, hundreds of years after Theodore, well, not hundreds, but 120 years or so after Theodore Roosevelt and these folks that stood up originally, the fact that still now here in 2019, there are a bunch of guys and gals that are still rallying to the defense of that idea that is that is badass and it gets me very excited and it makes me very proud and that's why I'm excited about this episode and why I wanted Land to join me to help me recap what's been going on over these past couple of eventful years where do things stand right now and what does the future of public lands look like and then finally how can we all be involved in it and make sure it's a positive one that is what we're going to talk about and Land Tawny he likes to say that the public land revolution is alive. And I 100% agree with that. And I'm very proud that so many members of this community, this Wired to Hunt family, are a part of that. So with all that said, I think we should just dive into our conversation with Land Tawny. All right, with me back on the show is Land Tawny. Welcome back, Land. Hey, it's so good to be back. Yeah, I, I always appreciate you taking the time to do uh, to do this, and, and in particular this week, because right now, as this podcast is going live, the 2019 Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Rendezvous will be kicking off in Boise, Idaho. And uh, I'm sure right now, as we're talking, which is a week before that, you are crazy, crazy busy. So, uh, so thanks for for carving out the time and and having this conversation. It's organized chaos over here, but we're getting it done and uh, happy to get on the phone with you, Mark. Yeah, I, I imagine it's got to be pretty wild. So, so this is what I what I'm wondering about right off the right off the get go because, as I said, this is going to be going live on Thursday, which is I think the first day of the rendezvous. And in a day or two from that point, you will be standing on the big stage, probably for storytelling night, addressing a crowd of likely thousands of people telling them about the state of BHA and the state of public lands across the country. And I'm just kind of wondering what is that big take home message or that big rallying cry going to be for everyone that week during the event? What's your message? 
You know, I think the, the first part of that is just the amazing growth that we continue to enjoy over here at BHA. Um, you know, we'll congratulate everybody in that room. You know, we had a goal of getting to 30,000 members last year. Back in November of last year, we were at 25, and we really leaned on our chapter leaders as well as members to kind of get out and spread the word. And lo and behold, we met our membership goal of 30,000 uh, today. We're sitting at 36,000. So that's super exciting. Uh, The growth at that point, you know, I don't want to, I'm knocking on wood right now, uh, but we've got seven chapters that will be new chapters that will be established. So we'll be welcoming in uh, Kansas, Oklahoma, Illinois, Indiana, uh, West Virginia, not West Virginia, excuse me, New Jersey, um, Tennessee is breaking away from the Southeast chapter and then Yukon up in Canada. And so that will bring us to 40, 45 uh, uh, state-based chapters here in the lower 48, and then three up in Canada. And so, you know, we're getting close to total coverage, and that's super exciting, so like the growth piece. But I think like the big one that I'll be talking about, Mark, is really reveling in this win that we just had on this public lands package. And, you know, this was a bill that contained the land and water conservation fund. It also contained a bunch of other public land pieces. And, you know, that vote that happened there, it was 92 to eight in the Senate and then 363 to 62 in the house, both kind of veto proof votes. And then the president signed it into law and, you know, you don't get those kind of votes anywhere out in DC. Um, you know, there's a lot of partisanship that's going on. People seem to be on one side or the other and fighting all the time. And this, you know, this bill that had not only land and water conservation fund stuff in it, but a ton of other things, I get passed overwhelmingly. And I think that's something to like revel in and really celebrate and then take that energy, you know, into kind of our work as we go on for the rest of the year. So that's going to be the big message, I think, is, you know, welcoming the family. That's going to, you'll have somebody from every single state like we did last year. Um, and then welcoming those new chapters celebrating the growth and celebrating the big win that we just had about a month ago. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty incredible. The, the John Dingle Jr. Conservation Management and Recreation Act, I think is, is the full name of this bill you're talking about. You got it. That is a big one. And, um, <laughs> and you know, as, as I looked at that, as you just said, a pretty resounding vote there that at least when I look at it, I see is that being, proof positive of the impact that we as a community and BHA and all the other hunters and anglers and and other folks that enjoy the outdoors, I feel like that's like this big billboard across on the highway across the country saying, hey, we can make a difference. Like over the last two, three, four years, there's been this really concerted effort across the country to, to make a stand for public lands. And I feel like this is like the, the sign that like they were hearing us. Like we really, influence people. Is that how you see this too? Is this like an affirmation of all the work that we've all been doing? Absolutely. You know, I think it's like the revolution is live, right? And we're witnessing it. And I think that, you know, it's first started back, you know, when Chaffetz tried to, to really, you know, sell 2 million acres of public land. And then that kind of cry that happened on social media and all across the country. I mean, that, I think that was the first piece that I was like, Ooh, man, this thing is really starting to pick up some steam. Um, And then the idea that was like playing defense and defense is always when you're losing something, I think there's always more of a call to action. You know, people are more fired up about losing um, something that, that they'll never get back. What I love about, you know, where we were with this public lands package 
is that that's something that was proactive and people still, you know, they made phone calls, they showed up at meetings, they sent emails. And so they're really feeling empowered right now. So I think it's, you're exactly right. There's been this like awakening, um, I think around public lands and that, you know, that really, we don't have these public lands by accident and they're not going to be carried forward by accident either. And so when you get a big win like this, like that's a notch in the belt. And I think we're going to be able to use that momentum as we go forward. But yeah, I think it's, you know, we're witnessing a public lands kind of revolution and, you know, that is an indication and validation of that revolution. Yeah. It kind of, it kind of brings back echoes of, and tell me if you do disagree with this at all, but it kind of reminds me of, of what happened in like the late fifties and early sixties when there was this big fight within the public land sphere over dinosaur national monument. They were going to put a, a big dam in there and it would have flooded these beautiful canyons out there on the border of Utah and Colorado. And there's this huge uprising of, of folks kind of across the, the conservation community saying, Hey, we are not okay with this incredible place that was recently somewhat recently protected uh being flooded and and damaged for for development and and we ended up winning that battle the dam was pulled out of the development plan and then the conservation community took that momentum so they were playing defense they had this momentum and they took it and they moved forward and actually got the wilderness act passed a handful of years later um and then after that was all sorts of great public land and conservation conservation related things happening in the 60s and 70s do you feel like we might be kind of in a similar wave of momentum that we could push forward with that kind of positive difference in the future? Yeah, I mean, I would say absolutely. And I think it's a, it's a great kind of comparison in that, you know, I mean, people are, I think a lot of people thought their voice didn't count anymore in this country, you know, and you think about big business, you think about the lobbyists, you think, you know, man, I'm just one person. How can I make a difference? And I think, Again, starting back with that kind of Chaffetz kind of pushback, and then now this positive piece, like the squeaky wheel still gets the grease in this country, and and people are realizing that their voice does count. And yes, there's a lot of deals that are done in the back rooms out in D.C., and there's a lot of influence from lobbyists and, and, and big business. But, you know, we the people ultimately are the ones making the votes. And I think when people start to speak up and ask for things, even demand them, I would say happen with land and water conservation fund once it's sunset. It is the people demanded that, that we make sure we permanently authorize that program. That politicians listen. You know, ultimately at the end of the day, they want to be elected again. And when the people, you know, are just banging at their door, um, you know, they listen. And and when while they do have those other influences, you know, at the end of the day, they want to be voted on. And those big businesses and, and lobbyists, like they only got one vote too. So. Um, I'm pretty excited about it. It's like, it's like of this empowerment kind of nature of what's going on right now. And again, thinking about how we take the momentum from, you know, the, these votes that we just had in this public lands package, you know, to other things. So, uh, it's exciting times I think to be living in. Yeah. So, so I want to talk about the, um, the Dingle Conservation Act in a little bit more detail, but before that, I guess, I think, we got a little caught up on the defense side that you talked about back with the Chaffetz bill that came out, HR 622, and and everything that happened yep. back in, I think that would have been 2017. I think it was January 2017, maybe that happened. Um, and like you said, that was kind of like an aha moment, not just for us probably, but probably for a lot of other folks within the government, kind of seeing what kind of momentum was there. Um, and since that point, 
I, I remember having a conversation with Randy Newberger about this, that that was like a very overt bill saying like, hey, we want to sell this land. And then there was a handful of other things around that time where they're talking about selling or transferring public lands. And and of course, you guys and, and, and this whole community kind of stood up and said, no, we are not okay with the transfer or sale of land. Um, it seems like since that point, there hasn't been as much, uh, there haven't been as many proposals like that, that overtly call for that kind of thing. But now there seems to be this death by a thousand cuts strategy, like little stabs here and there, taking taking a chunk out of a specific regulation or a specific place or something like that. Is that kind of where you see things right now as far as the evolution of what was this land transfer movement? And, and I don't know, maybe now it's like a land chip away at it movement. Um, is that an accurate way to describe it? I think that's an accurate way to describe it at a federal level. Um, but I think at a state level, there is still like this, I think this movement of transfer or sell of public lands is still alive and well. Um, there is a uh, wildlife management area right now in Missouri that the legislature is trying to put up on the chopping block. I think it's, I might not get this right, but I think it's like 9,000 acres um, that was just established recently as a, you know, as this wildlife management area where people can go hunt and fish and, you know, the legislature is trying to take that ability away. Um, there's no net gain of public lands bills that are happening all across the West and the Midwest. Um, and, and so I think that that kind of sell and transfer movement is alive and well at the state level, but at the, at the federal level, I think you're exactly right, but I think it's, it's done. And, and so that's again, because the people spoke up and they were loud and I think made an example in particular, you know, out of Mr. Chaffetz and, you know, that picture that he had of himself and that, uh, that yeah. dog and he's wearing all camo. Um, that was an indic, you know, that he was responding to the people. And so I think his colleagues recognize that. I mean, I still think, you know, um, Senator Mike Lee in particular gave a speech this last summer, um, to, uh, kind of a very conservative kind of pro, transfer crowd and talked about how, you know, that maybe right now the uh, atmosphere wasn't there to actually get something done, but he said that he was in this for the long, long term and the long term fight and that he was committed to making sure that we, you know, transferred or, or sold those public lands. And so I think it's always going to be underneath the surface mark, but right now at a federal level, I think we've pushed back. Um, and I think, again, that's the people that have done that and the politicians have listened um, at a state level. They haven't quite heard that kind of vehement, uh, like, like pushback and disdain for those ideas as quite as much as they could, um, especially in, you know, I was just in Iowa and they had a, a no net gain kind of bill there. And that's where we have a brand new chapter there. And, you know, we were able to mobilize people and that's a pretty small chapter. They started, I think, earlier this year, at like 150 members and now they're already at 450 but they were able to push back. But again, like that's happening at a state level. So I wouldn't say it's dead um, at all at a state level. And then I'd also say it's always underneath the surface at a federal level. Yeah. Um, so, so I want to talk about that Iowa group too, because that was a pretty great thing, a pretty neat example of, of these new chapters jumping up in different parts of the country than you typically think of when it comes to public lands and, and right away making totally. an impact. I saw an article of, I don't know, a few weeks ago showing that hundreds of folks showed up at a committee meeting about this bill. And I don't think that probably had ever happened about a public land bill in Iowa around this type of issue. And it sounded like folks were pretty taken aback by it. And it, 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 it sounds like it got 
made some impact in the House. It sounds like a Senate version of the bill maybe was still pushed forward, but that was cool to see. But back to the um, back to the bigger picture stuff. Yeah. Given like the fact that there is this kind of underneath the surface still a desire to work towards sale or transfer public land in the long run, but in the short term they're now taking this, you know, get a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, what kind of stuff? should we be keeping an eye out for? Or are there any specific proposals or bills out there right now that are that are particularly dangerous? Because I feel like when we were talking about sales and transfers, like those headlines got attention. You know, that got Joe Rogan and that got all these other people to like jump on Instagram and, and say something about it. But it seems like these other ones can fly under the radar much more easily. Um, how do we keep that from happening? How do we keep track of the smaller things that add up to big things? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that, you know, nothing is going to be as sexy as like, you know, that kind of public lands kind of sale of. And when I say that, it's just like, that's what, I mean, you're totally right. You know, when Joe Rogan picked this up, I think that's one of the only times he's used this platform for advocacy. Um, and there was a, you know, immediate threat and, you know, it was something that was very tangible and people could understand and they jumped all over it. And so, um, that's pretty sexy to me as far as like organizing world. It's very simple. Um, I think some of these death by a thousand cuts pieces, they're not as sexy at all. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that is super important is to watch the budget. And, you know, right now the Congress is working on a budget and, and figuring out kind of how they appropriate funds. And then, you know, like how they're going to keep the government open as well as kind of fund our agencies at a, you know, Forest Service level, a Bureau of Land Management level, and at a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service level. And, you know, the budget that the president came up with this year had really drastic cuts to all three of those agencies, um, some in the upwards of 15%. And, and so at that point, you know, that's that death by a thousand cuts that you're talking about that really is starving these agencies of the food that they need. And so ultimately, you know, they can't do their jobs. They can't keep roads open. They can't do wildlife habitat improvement projects. Um, and, and that's makes the, the body of these agencies look sick and then feeds into this idea of sale. Um, but budgets aren't that sexy, you know, <laughs> it's just plain and simple. It's a, uh, it's just not something that people necessarily galvanize around. And so I think our job is to make, you know, make that simple. I think, you know, as, and you as a communicator to make that stuff simple. And then when we have leverage points where we have action is to, it's really be able to reach out to people and engage them. And again, I don't think we're going to get, you know, necessarily the, the vehement kind of pushback that we got with Shafitz. Um, but I think it's a place for us to, you know, I think there's a much more hyper awareness around public lands and how they're managed now than there ever has been, at least in my career. And, and so I think to, let's use that as to our advantage and, and work on things. Um, you know, I think this, this idea of energy domination right now in this country that has, you know, kind of hurt our sage grouse conservation implementation plans is putting oil and gas, you know, development in the middle of, you know, the longest mule deer migratory corridor in the country, which is, is in, uh, uh, Wyoming, like those are the kind of things that I think we need to pay attention to and really be contacting our elected officials about as well as administrative officials about and letting them know how we feel. And so to me, um, again, that's BHA's job is to really make those things as simple as possible and then make the, you know, the connection to these people that make decisions as easy as possible as well. So yeah. that's, I think, you know, again, like I, it's how do we make it, you know, so people get more engaged. 
I think that's just education in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I think we're, there's a lot of positive stuff that I can talk about that we're going to be working on, which I'm glad that not just playing defense, um, but people need to stay vigilant as well. Yeah. And I feel like with all these little things like that, uh, not only is it easy to not even find out about it, but I also worry like on my end of it, as someone who's like trying to spread the word about things and on your as in you're trying to spread the word about things. Um, there's this idea of, I think, I think people refer to it as like issue fatigue or something along those lines. Um, where like if, if you keep honking the, the horn or, or yelling into the, uh, the megaphone saying danger, danger, whatever, the more and more you say that, the more and more you do that, the more people eventually start to tune it out and just, there's too much. They can't, they can't send an email for every single issue. Um, so this is like one of the things I internally like struggle with. Like how do I pick and choose the things that we really need to get folks motivated to act on? Uh, how do you, how do you think about that? How's BHA thinking about that? Um, Cause it's probably something we all need to be kind of thinking about, right? It is. I think, you know, the way we try to couch it is again, like these leverage points, you know, what is the, you know, in the process what is the decision making that's going on? And so, you know, let's take land water conservation fund. You know, we, there was a lot of education effort that happened around that fund. I mean, I, it was like the best kept secret for a while in the United States, like, you know, it's the number one access tool that nobody knew about. And so there was a ton of education that got put into that piece. And so you're, you know, creating reports, you're showing examples, um, of real, you know, places that people can go and experience. And so then by the time that thing sunset last fall, people knew much more about the land and water conservation fund. And so when they find out that this thing, you know, is going away, that's when that pushback really was, was, um, I think, uh, uh, pretty harsh and, and that wouldn't have happened, I think, without that education. And so I think there's like stages to all these things. And so I think the education piece in particular is important, then it's like not going, I think you're totally right with like an issue fatigue. It says, let's not, you know, say a bill gets introduced, then it's going to go through a committee, then it's North Senate subcommittee, then it goes into a committee. And then now it's going to be on the like house floor, or Senate floor. Like if you took action, if you ask people to take action, every single one of those like kind of points, I think that's when they get that issue fatigue. So it's like trying to figure out like when the most important things are. And I would say, um, that would be in an ultimate committee meeting. And then um, when it's on the floor, you either the Senate or the house. And so trying to pick and choose. So education and then pick and choose kind of when those leverage points are. And is that, can I tell you like a perfect playbook for that? No, <laughs> you know, I think there's sometimes, you know, there's bills that are introduced that are basically just ideas and they're floated as balloons, you know, trying to figure out if, it, you know, if there's an opportunity to move them forward is that, you know, things that we should be spending time on, you know, it just kind of depends on what that bill is. And so, um, that's again, that's why John Gale gets paid the big cash over here at BHA <laughs> or yeah. whatever, maybe not the big cash, but some cash, um, to, uh, to really think about like that leverage point, you know, and we have, you know, somebody out in DC now and we've got partners that we can talk to about, because if you do that too much, again, people stop responding and that's the last thing that we want. Um, especially right now when they're feeling the juice so much that their voice does count. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. 
because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. So speaking of uh, their voice counting and speaking of LWCF, let's let's revel a little bit in that. We, we briefly mentioned that it was this big win and, and proof positive of the fact that we could all make a difference. But um, but for those who aren't aware of what that was all about, can you give us like the 30-second cliff notes on what we achieved with the passing of this bill um, and, and probably especially with LWCF since you mentioned that as well? Sure. So for those that don't know what the Land and Water Conservation Fund is, it was established in 1964, um, that's when oil and gas development was starting to increase in the Gulf of Mexico. And the thought then of Congress was, if we're doing, you know, this, this resource extraction on one resource in the Gulf, we should be, you know, giving back to another. And, and so that bill passed, I think, the Senate 99 to 1 originally. So huge bipartisan support. And basically taking excise taxes off of, uh, or excuse me, royalties off of uh, oil and gas development, and putting that, that back into conservation and access stateside. And so I think 99% of the counties in the United States have utilized this money. And that's all the way from, you know, baseball fields and swimming pools in rural America to uh, parks to fishing access sites to big kind of conservation um, easements um, to, you know, additions to our public lands estate. And so this, this fund has, again, been used since 1964. It's sunset last September, September 30th, and which meant that, you know, we weren't going to have the ability to, to really send these funds out stateside anymore. And, and so now that it has been passed, it's permanently reauthorized. And so we don't have to worry about this thing sunsetting anymore. What that legislation did not do was really provide funding. And so still we have to go back to the appropriations process every year and try to get as much out of the 900 million has been authorized back to um, this, this program. And, you know, 
recently that's enjoyed anywhere from like 300 to 400 million dollars that you know back in 1964 that bought you a lot more than it does today um and then that has to be split up you know between all 50 states and so the next push with that bill really is or with that fund is to try to get it for dedicated funding, so away from the appropriations process, um, dedicated funding and full funding, and, it's, and that full funding would be at $900 million. And that would get us you know, in a lot better places um, than we are today. There's opportunities, you know, there's tons of landowners and tons of access opportunities all around this country, but if we don't utilize this, you know, don't have the money to utilize now, you know, potentially those opportunities go away. So yeah. that's the LWCF. Um, it's awesome, awesome tool. And, you know, again, it's been used by 99% of the counties in this country. Um, besides, you know, the, that big, big piece, and I think that was a driving factor when you see the votes, there's also some, some smaller pieces within that. And, um, one of them would be the Frank and Jeannie Moore wild steelhead uh, special management area. That's in Oregon. It's a steelhead spot, um, that basically provided some protection along, um, this river to make sure that, you know, that those steelhead could be around forever. Um, there was mineral withdrawal that happened in the Metal Valley. Um, again, pretty much around fish, uh, the Yellowstone gateway, uh, was another place where there was permanent mineral withdrawal, basically saying that you can do, you know, everything you want on that public land besides take out minerals in this mm-hmm. Yellowstone gateway, just like it sounds, it was right outside of Yellowstone park. Just not a place that you wanted to have like an open pit mine there. Yeah. Um, and there was other, I think ultimately there was about 5 million acres of, of new wilderness that was protected, um, about 500 miles of, of wild and scenic river. Um, so that was huge. And then one of these ones that, uh, you know, that people probably don't pay attention to that much, but was reauthorization of the Neotropical Migratory Bird Conservation Act, which say that five times fast, it's almost harder than the Dingle <laughs> Junior Act. Um, but it permanently authorized that and, and then increased funding to $6.5 million. And so these are for, you know, neotropical birds, these little, these little birds that enhance you and I's, you know, time out in the woods. They're the things that we're pursuing, but I couldn't imagine my life without them on the ground. It kind of goes back to that, that Aldo Leopold saying like that all parts matter, you know, mm-hmm. it tends to be good for the bio- biological community. That's good. And when it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's a bad thing. And so this is really making sure that our ecosystems um, are whole, um, at least for migratory birds. Um, so that, that was a big piece of that as well. But then there was other pieces that I could talk about, but I think those are some of the highlights. Back on the LWCF front, you mentioned the fact that, yeah, it's reauthorized, but it's not fully funded. Um, I think I saw recently that a bill was proposed to permanently fully fund it. Is that right? And is that one of those leverage points that we need to really focus on and, and push on that specifically? Or is it still early on that? No, I'd say absolutely. So right now, a bill has been introduced, um, and it was introduced. With bipartisan support, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but it had equal Democrats and equal Republicans, you know, good um, representation in the Senate. And so that bill has been introduced that calls for full funding, so at $900 million, and then dedicated funding, so off the appropriation cycle. And so that bill, you know, if, if anybody's listening to this right now, they can call their senator and ask them to become a co-sponsor of that bill. Uh, let me see. I'm trying to think if I got something. I can tell you exactly what that is. I will look for that and I'll tell you. Um, okay. And so like that, I mean, if they, if you, all you have to do is we need a build number, but it's just, you know, call your elected official um, and say, 
become a co-sponsor of the bill to fully fund and fully and dedicate funding to the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And, and so that's a big deal right now. I and mean, I think that that will move through the Senate. Um, and then we got a, a little bit of a different situation in the House, um, which, you know, I, I, we don't have a bill that's introduced there yet. Um, but there's some questions about where they want that funding to come from. So um, that's something you can do right now. Okay. That's definitely a good one to to be keeping an eye on and, and, and an easy way to, to make a difference on that. Because like you said, LWCF, it's not something that's just impacting folks in the Rockies. It's not just someone that's impacting folks in the Pacific Northwest or down in like these big public land areas that people think of. I mean, that's, I remember looking up, there's, there's a map somewhere. I can't remember where I found this, but it mapped out all the different LWCF funded projects across the country over time. And I could see like a river that I love to fish. There was a project there. There was a, a forest that I used to hunt. There had been a project there. There was somewhere in the city where I grew up. I mean, there's all these things that impact people in the midwest in the northeast in the south i mean it's across the board this is this is positively impacting people's lives so we've got a big part of it across the finish line but this is you know it's great to have it but if there's no money in the fund we can't do much um so so yeah let's let's use that as one of the focus areas um yeah i mean i I would you know it's, it's super important sorry super important here in the west for sure. But, you know, as I'm traveling across the country and kind of, you know, doing my due diligence and, and, you know, kind of studying what's going on in each one of these states, like I'll take Iowa again as an example, is that, you know, they have 2% public land. Um, they rank 49, 48 out of 50, kind of depending on how you count it, as far as how much public lands they have um, compared to other states. And the Land and Water Conservation Fund, quite literally, is pretty much the only opportunity they have to increase their public estate there in Iowa. And they've done that in recent years. Um, I mean, it's, again, I think this, this property was like 9,000 acres or 10,000 acres. That's huge, you know, for them in there. That's something that, you know, they can make now access and go hunt and fish on. So to me, I think it's just as important, um, you know, in, in the Midwest and the East as it is in the, in the West. And the, you know, not only as a way to grow the estate, but also to gain access to, you know, waterways in particular. Yeah. In your travels across all these different states now, as you mentioned, there's all these new chapters opening across the rest of the country, the East, the Midwest, et cetera. Um, are there any other like local issues you've come to become aware of when it comes to the, these public land concerns or opportunities? Um, I mean, you've been everywhere. I've seen it in Washington. I've seen it in Iowa. I've seen it in Minnesota. Um, any other examples other than that one you mentioned in Iowa that, that stand out as something folks should know about? You know, I think that, uh, I mean, this is, this takes us away maybe totally from like the public lands piece, but I think CWD is becoming just this, Yeah. I mean, that's, that's on everywhere I go. It's on the people's, like on the forefront of their mind and trying to figure out, you know, what they do. And, you know, Wisconsin kind of took a slow play and now they're paying for it a little bit. And our chapter up there is actually leading kind of an effort um, for us for a policy statement on, you know, CWD, what do you do? once you get it and how should we kind of address that. And, and so I think CWD is at the forefront of almost every single conversation that I have, no matter where I am. Yeah. Um, and that's unfortunate that, uh, you know, that, that, that conversation is becoming elevated um, because that means it's that disease is literally spreading everywhere. Um, but at the same time, I think that since it is being elevated, I think there's, you know, opportunities for conversations around that. Um, you know, again, I think I've, I've you know, our, we don't even have a, a chapter in Oklahoma yet, 
but uh you know i went down there and we did a couple pint nights and talked to them and then some stuff happened at the state legislature around restricting you know the the fishing game agency in buying kind of new public land you know from willing willing private landowners that want to either give their land to the state or sell it you know um to them that there was legislation proposed there that you know would have said that the legislature had to approve anything that went forward and so our our Folks weren't even, you know, developed as a full-on chapter, but they were able to work with, you know, the department um, and then members and really push back against that piece. And so I think if there's, I mean, this isn't an issue, but what I would say there's a lot of hope across this country right now, you know, and especially in these states like Iowa, Kansas, um, Indiana, Oklahoma, that really don't have a lot of public land. I think they value it almost more. Um, in places where we have a lot of public lands. I think sometimes we take it for granted. Yeah. They do not. Um, they really value these places. And um, I think the one that I would say it's an issue that's popping up everywhere is really water access. And whether that be up in South Dakota, um, where they're trying to limit lake access, where now half the lake is considered private, even though there's been public funds put into boat ramps. Um, that's a interesting situation down Louisiana, um, kind of marsh access is being challenged all the time. And so, you know, places that, that people have gone for, you know, lifetimes are now being restricted or these little passes are being gated off. Um, you look at beach access in Florida and in uh, North Carolina and in California that's being restricted, or at least challenged, I would say. Um, all like that water access, you know, I think the, there's a couple of ways to look at water, um, both for like drinking and kind of irrigation, but also for recreation. And I think there was a quote at one point um, that maybe it's something we live by here in Montana, but uh, whiskey's for drinking and, and water's for fighting. <laughs> and I think as, you know, water becomes more and more of a finite resource, like you're going to see that become much more of an issue all the way across the country. And, you know, in Louisiana in particular, you know, I don't know how much you know about that. The I know a little. Mississippi River Delta. Okay. So there's the Mississippi River Delta that's been, you know, it's like one of the most productive waterfowl places in the country. I think it winters 70% of our ducks. It's awesome for redfish and speckled trout. It's kind of like a nursery. And that marsh has been kind of disappearing since the 20s because we cut that river off, um, you know, like the, all the fresh water and sediment that comes from up north, you know, Montana, Minnesota, it trickles down. All that just goes out in the middle of the Gulf. And we did that to protect that, you know, protect the people that were living down there from the, you know, every year in the spring when there was a flood, which is a good thing. But what that's done is it's, it's really killed the marsh because it doesn't, it isn't supplemented by that fresh water and sediment. And so as that marsh has receded, I think it's receded even as, you know, about the size of the state of uh, Vermont. As that's receded, like that just puts way more stress on, you know, water access because there's less places to go. And so I think, you know, while there's been traditional access down there for a long time, um, now that that, you know, there's less and less places to go, then this is kind of coming to the head. So, um, water is going to be something I think that we continually watch and you know, we've hired somebody over here at BHA and that's all they do is look at kind of water access issues all across the country. And so, you know, that's basically trying to get up to speed, be experts on that piece and then engage our people on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely one of those things that impacts everybody, whether you hunt or fish or just want clean water, which, which brings us to something that has been all over the news just recently, which is the changes to the Clean Water Act. Um, 
can you, and I think we're, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the comment period has passed us now, unfortunately, but I think it's probably still important that we understand what's going on if, if, if we don't already. Can you get us up to speed on, on what's been proposed as far as changes to that? Why, you know, what the Clean Water Act even is maybe for some folks would be good to know too. Yeah, I think the, when you talked earlier, and I thought this was great, when you talked about kind of like the momentum that started back in the 60s, you know, around um, kind of just public lands, and then we got the Wilderness Act, and later in the 70s had, you know, the uh, Clean Air and Clean Water Acts that were established. Mm-hmm. And really the Clean Water Act was originally established because, you know, we were just polluting our rivers um, here in the United States. I mean, there was rivers that you could literally um, – light on fire, you know, because they had so much oil in them. Um, and so, yeah, it was just, it's just crazy that that is, you know, it's not that long ago when you think about it. And, and so that's the way it was originally, um, you know, put forth is basically to protect the waters of the U.S. that belong to you and I and every American and to make sure that we had those, you know, again, that we had clean water for drinking and for irrigation. And, and so that, when that was established, again, it was like bipartisan. Um, Nixon signed that into law, and and so it's this great kind of conservation victory. Now, there's been some challenges to uh, what is actually a jurisdictional water, so underneath the Clean Water Act, and that one of those challenges uh, through a court case was around temporary wetlands and intermittent streams. So temporary wetlands are these wetlands like in North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, and other places in the country where they're only wet during the spring. And so, you know, there's 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 the spring rains and, and there's these little dips in the in the topography and those are filled with water. Well those have awesome invertebrate life, so insect life in there that are really, really important to uh, ducks in particular, waterfowl. And so um, while they're not like those, those are not connected directly to a river back in 2000, those, uh, they lost protection. So those temporary wetlands, same thing happened with intermittent streams, intermittent streams, you know, are only run during the spring as well when it's kind of high water. And so they're not year round streams, but they're super important, especially to, uh, uh, um, spawning trout. And, and so both those lost protections back in 2000 and then the Obama administration did a lengthy uh, comment period. And throughout that comment period, I think there was over a million people that uh, provided comments, majority of which, like super majority of which were to restore protections. So that's exactly what the Obama administration did, you know, restoring protections to intermittent streams and temporary wetlands. And then the new administration came in and said, no, we're going to roll it back again. So at least we're going to start a process to look at that. And so that's what's been going on. I think that comment period was over last week. And again, I think there's an overwhelming amount of comments that are in support of restoring kind of these protections um, or keeping these protections. But, um, you know, there's going to be a decision made that we're, that we're worried about that's really going to take away protections for these intermittent streams and temporary wetlands. So unfortunately, it's become like this political football. This gets passed back and forth instead of when you know it was established back in the in the seventies when it was really a bipartisan nature and something that you know really stood the test of time until two thousand. Yeah. So you bring up an interesting point. This this whole game of political football, where it's like this pendulum yeah. is swinging every four to eight years, where you get some yeah. pro conservation stuff um, from one party and then a new administration comes in and it swings the other way and stuff gets pulled back. And then it, it goes back and forth, back and forth. And it doesn't seem like since the 
70s, really, late 60s and the 70s when you had that you just talked about with Nixon passing the Clean Air and Clean Water Act, and then that was the Endangered Species Act, and there was, I mean, all yep. these things, the, the Wellness Act that we talked about in the 60s, all this really foundational stuff that now are we depend on, you know, our, our environment and public lands are all, in a lot of ways, dependent on those, those acts that passed there in the 60s and 70s by Republicans and Democrats. We haven't really had that kind of bipartisan support at all since then. Um, maybe barring this this recent bill that just passed in a in a pretty rare bipartisan fashion. Do you think Do you think we can ever get back to what it was at that time in the in the seventies? Um, do you think that this is this recent bill is an example of that happening, or is this kind of a flash in the pan? And it'll probably get right back to these issues are split down party lines, and, and you're stuck. It's a really good question, and I think we're living in very interesting times. Um, you know, the I think what happened since the 70s and kind of early 80s when there was this kind of bipartisan nature and people were working together, I think there was a wedge that was driven between the sportsman's community and the environmental community. Mm-hmm. And I think when you have those two working together, I think that's why that's why I surmise why we had such you know, bipartisan efforts and we got such great things accomplished back at that time. And I think there's been a, you know, a really thoughtful, systematic kind of division created between the two. Um, is that ever going to come back? I'm not sure. I think that one thing that I'm super excited about is as kind of, you know, the, the other human sports, I guess, human powered sports, uh, folks get more organized. So like the kayakers, the mountain bikers, the climbers, the backpackers, as they're getting more organized, I'm starting to feel like we're getting to some of that critical mass again. And, and I think that played out, you know, in a big way with this, you know, this public lands package that just packed, this just passed in such overwhelming fashion. I think that, you know, that it'll be interesting to see kind of, how um, this emerging kind of voice works with kind of hunters and anglers who, you know, we've been doing conservation and caring about public lands for 150 years. And so as those, you know, and I, I don't, I hate to kind of pigeonhole people places like, you know, there's plenty of our members that ride mountain bikes and go backcountry skiing and kayaking when they're not hunting and fishing, you know, they're outdoors people. And so, you know, whatever chance they get, they're out in the woods or on the water. Um, but I, I do think there is kind of like this perceived division between kind of like the, again, the human powered folks and the hunters and anglers. And I think I'm starting to see that that's coming together. And so I have great hope in that. And, you know, when you think about like the people that hunt and fish and the people that kayak and mountain bike, like that's every single political stripe in this country. You know, that's, uh, that's Democrats, that's Republicans, that's independents, that's <clears throat> libertarians, that's Green Party, like all those people love to get outside and on the water. And so I, I, and I don't want to be, you know, too, um, the glass is, you know, so half full on this thing, but like, that gives me hope, Mark. And, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I think that that if we bring these two groups together, we're not going to agree on everything all the time, but boy, on the things that we can agree upon, like this public lands package, we can have a unified voice. And I think that we'll get what we want. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. 
Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. I thought it was really encouraging last year uh, at the BHA Rendezvous of 2018 when, uh, you know, in a very symbolic, I thought it was very symbolic of this kind of bringing together of these two halves of the outdoor community when Yvonne Chouinard, you know, made an appearance at the Rendezvous, was walking around the beers, bands, and public lands night. He he shared a story and, and stood up on stage in front of everybody and said that this was like the, I think he said something on the lines of like, this is the most impressive group of people I've ever seen. Um, and you know he's the for those that don't know he's the founder and CEO of Patagonia, which is I think they've kind of established themselves as as the leading voice for public lands and conservation related issues in that community. If you want to call it the REI crowd, um, I feel like they've yep. really taken that strongest stance. And so to have like the the leader of that section or that group saying, "Hey, I'm all for being here with a bunch of hunters and anglers um, and joining hands to to fight for these common causes. I thought that was like really great positive symbolism to see these two groups of people saying, "Hey, we can we can do these things together." Even though, like you mentioned, we still disagree on a lot of stuff. Like Chenard and, and a lot of folks at Patagonia and a lot of folks in that community will disagree with a lot of hunters about specific things. You know, let's talk about grizzly bears or all sorts of different hunting related sure. issues. Like there's going to be stuff there. Um, but I love the fact that there are these things that we can set aside some of these differences and say, Hey, you might live in the city. I live in the country. You might vote for this person. I might vote for this person. You might talk like this. I might talk like that, but there are these things that we can come together on because it's bigger than those petty differences. Um, and, and like you said, I feel like the Dingle Conservation Act was one of those um, 
results of that kind of thing happening. So, so I agree with you. I hope that, and I think there are these examples of the fact that that's, that's starting to happen. Um, but I, I don't know where I heard this, but someone said like the fish rots from the head first. Um, and I'm hoping the opposite is true. So I'm hoping, cause I see like this, this bipartisan nature of like the, the REI crowd and the Cabela's crowd. Like, I think we're starting to come together here down in like the body, like the average everyday people. Absolutely. We're saying, Hey, the hunters and anglers and mountain bikers and kayakers and wildlife watchers, we can get together to fight for these public lands, but it's how do we get the head of the fish? So our politicians, Republicans, Democrats, how do we get them to make sure to, to do the same thing? And, and probably like, like we've been talking about yelling really loud and very consistently uh, to the right people probably eventually reverses the, the fish rot. Right. <laughs> yeah. I love that analogy, by the way, I'm trying to figure out where I'm on that fish right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the, uh, I, I think it goes back to like this idea of like the 80, 20 rule a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to agree upon 80% of the of things and then we're going to disagree on 20%. And, and I would say, you know, amongst my friends that I hang out with, if we're on an 80, 20 rule, like that's pretty good for us. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I'd say the same thing with my wife, you know, like if I, if I told my wife that we had to agree upon a hundred percent of the same things all the time, I wouldn't be married to her and vice versa. Yeah. And, and so I think this 80, 20 rule um, is an important thing to remember. And, and yeah, I, I think, I think the grassroots are, again, there are many of the same people. You know, you think about the foodie movement that's happening right now in this country and a lot of kind of new hunters that are in their early 20s, early 30s that didn't grow up hunting, but they're super active outdoors. They grow their own gardens and now they want to kill their own meat. Like, like that's that crowd, you know? And I think that, you know, we're doing storytelling events and in Minneapolis and in Seattle and in San Francisco and some of these urban centers you know, we're getting some of those new people that are there and they're super interested and, you know, want to jump in. And, and I would say, you know, as a kid who grew up, uh, you know, hunting and fishing, you know, on my dad's back and just doing stuff from a very young age, like, like these people are almost more passionate than me when they come to it. Cause it's brand new to them, you know? Yeah. And, and so I welcome them to the floor. And I think again, that, you know, that food might be the best way to kind of bridge, the gap with these folks and, you know, speaking of Patagonia, we did an event at their headquarters in Ventura a couple months ago, um, you know, where we invited the public and had some, uh, wild boar for people to taste, you know, the just gotten shot two or three days before that. I think it was three or four picks and drank beer and ate wild boar and listened to some music and told some stories and, you know, what a way to like bring people together. And again, I'm not going to say that everybody walk out of there singing the same sheet of music, but we're able to have conversations over food, you know, over a little beer and, you know, find common ground. And I think that's really um, what we need to be striving for. And I think that people are starving for that in this country right now. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of memes and a lot of uh, anger that's out there. And I think people are trying to figure out ways to come together. And I, I can't think of a better one than public lands and public waters. Yeah. So, so at an event like that, the Patagonia headquarters event, or I know that you've been connecting with the folks over at OIA. So the outdoor industry association, which kind of represents that REI crowd, if we'll just label it that for now. Um, what's been like the feedback you've been getting from that community when we, when we talk about these issues, like, is there the same positive vibes? Like they want to get together with hunters and anglers or is there some resistance still? What's the vibe you pick up there? You know, I think 
Um, I think there's some mutual like interest. I would say that for sure. I think that, you know, some of the barriers are that you and I like to kill stuff. Yeah. And I think sometimes people have a hard time getting over that and that, you know, that we're out there as predators while they're out there as observers. And so I think that's probably the biggest barrier to get over. I think food um, is helpful in that. Um, I think that, you know, as you know, a lot of these folks are just starting to get engaged in conservation. And so as the story is told to them about kind of where we came from, why we have what we have today, and kind of some of the stories that you and I have talked about today already, they start to have a better appreciation, I think, for hunters and anglers. And, you know, they're not just takers that were big time givers uh, back to these public lands and public waters and just conservation in general. Yeah. I think once they start to they figure that out, I think those barriers are broken down. But I'm not going to say that it's all like rosy, um, but I think the first part is like having those conversations. And, you know, if we can get in the door and have those conversations, um, nine times out of 10, I think we come out the other side looking, you know, in a better place. Um, you know, we're working with folks like New Belgium, you know, New Belgium, yeah. you think about fat tire and kind of that crowd that doesn't necessarily feel like a hunting and fishing crowd, but, you know, we were working with them multiple events at their headquarters in Colorado. We've done things at the outdoor retailer um, show with them. And, you know, what a, what a great brand to kind of like bring people together. And again, you know, I think that, you know, whoever invented beer, you know, that was like, I think it was like monks in Ireland or something, but, um, <laughs> and, uh, but like beers are bringing people together ever since it was, it was, you know, like, uh, created. And so I think, you know, those ideas, um, and doing that, I think is, is a way we get past some of that stuff. But, I, you know, I think, I, I guess one thing I would say that we as hunters um, also need to be careful of is that, is that yes, we have this amazing rich history of conservation. You think about the excise taxes during the 1920s, you know, with Pittman Robertson, think about the duck stamp. I mean, you know, many of the things that we've talked about today, like all that's awesome. And let's just be careful about beating on our chest too much and acting like, you know, and, and, and not acknowledging either others efforts now or roles that other people played. And I think, you know, if we do that, I think it's a much more welcoming conversation. If we sit there and be like, you guys are Johnny come lately and we've done everything and listen to us. Like that's not really a great way to start a conversation. I don't think. And yeah. so I, I think I would caution that, you know, all of us as ambassadors is to really, you know, be proud of our heritage, but not to be boastful, like too over boastful about it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and really, I think, you know, we're starting these conversations about, you know, potential backpack tax, which is kind of like an overarching theme, but that would be, you know, hiking boots, backpacks, sleeping bags, like other stuff, mountain bikes that gets used in the outdoors and really trying to figure out a similar system to what we do with like firearms, ammunition and fishing, you know, fishing and, and bow equipment. And I think in that conversation, I mean, think about the money that would generate and, and I think welcoming them to that kind of, uh, uh, to that opportunity, or at least talking about that opportunity, I think is a good thing and could be, you know, one of the biggest conservation wins in our lifetime if we actually got that done. Yeah. Yeah. You make a, a couple interesting points, especially you said that the chest beating sometimes I've thought about that too. And it's like, to your point, we have this tremendous legacy of what hunters have done as conservationists, all those things you listed. Um, but you know, there's this business saying that if you're not growing, you're dying. And I kind of feel like mm -hmm. that applies to to us as hunters. Like we can't just point to our past as 
um, affirmation of, of our value. Like, yes, we can be proud of our past, but we have to be growing too. We have to continue to contribute to the future. Um, so I think that's, that's where it becomes our, our onus, right? That's our new responsibility is we, we can look back at what all these, what our forefathers done and be inspired by that. But now like it's on us. Now we've got to take those next steps and hopefully 50 years, a hundred years from now, our grandkids can look back and say, wow, look at what these folks did and what they did because oh. of what they learned from folks in the thirties and the twenties and 1908, um, and all that stuff. Uh, which then, to your point with the backpack tax, this is one of those things that it, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Why wouldn't folks in the across the board, me too, buying backpacks or hiking boots and then the rest of the recreation community, why wouldn't we want to um, have some excise tax on that given back to conservation, public lands and whatnot? Um, but there's pushback on both sides of the issue. Um, there's pushback from the recreation community. It seems like the manufacturers and stuff about prices and stuff like that. But I'm more interested in the pushback from our community, which is I've heard some people say, no, I don't want a backpack tax because I like, and I'm quoting here in general and generalities here, the the line being that, no, we don't want the backpack tax because then we lose our influence right now. Hunters have this disproportionate influence because we're the ones that pay for the lion's share of conservation because of the Pittman Robertson act. But if all of a sudden hikers and bird watchers and all that stuff, all of a sudden they can say, well, now we pay for some large majority of it too. Then they start changing how decisions are being made about wildlife management hunting, whatever it might be. Um, is that a real threat or what do you think about that? How do we think about this? You know, I, I totally recognize that threat of kind of losing our clout and our kind of influence over decision-making. Like I totally recognize that, but I would say to people, and I've had this conversation many times is that, you know, hunting and fishing numbers are either going down or they're being maintained, but we're really not you know, we're not, we're not in a huge influx of new hunters and anglers in this country. And even if we are maintaining or even gaining a little bit, we're still becoming less and less of a percentage of the overall population. And so let's, let's think about that. And so, you know, think 50 years from now and we're headed towards this, like this cliff, and we're going to go over the top of this cliff that is, you know, like we just have lost all of our clout because our numbers aren't that big. Like that's not a place that I even want to think about. And so, you know, will we maybe potentially lose some clout if we add some folks in? Potentially. Um, and I think that, you know, that's a real conversation. That's one of the reasons to have, you know, build these relationships early. I think with, you know, these folks that, that don't, you know, catch and kill stuff. Um, but at the same time, man, we're not, it's not like we're living in a land of plenty right now either. You know, <laughs> like earlier in this conversation, we're talking about our agencies being starved, um, and you know, this is a way to, to bring money in. And I think bring money in with people who have, you know, again, many of the shared values that we do as hunters and anglers that, you know, they like to, that solitude and the challenge and the solace they can find out on our public lands and waters. And so I, I'm, I'm much more of a game of, uh, let's work together with them, build relationships, um, that, and, and add more money to the pot and then have conversations about how things are managed. And I think if we do that, I think we're in a much better place unless we, you know, instead of, I don't necessarily like this analogy, but sticking our heads in the sand and, and not really looking at what's going on around us. That analogy that you said earlier about, you know, 
uh, you're not changing, you're dying, you know? And I, I I really feel like we have to be doing that. And if, you know, if we don't, boy, I don't know if the future looks so great for us. And I think if, you know, if we do, um, that I think, you know, that, that our future looks much brighter. Yeah. So, so then what is your, your view of the future then? Where, where do you see things headed based off reading the tea leaves, seeing what's happened over the last four years, been a lot going on. Um, what, what do you predict we have coming down the line in the next few years? How do you see stuff around the 2020 election impacting things? Um, what should we be thinking about around all that? You know, I think that, that this is a great question and um, tea leaves or a crystal ball are always hard. But I think that, you know, as public lands become, there's been much more of an awareness around them. I think it's going to play in this next election cycle, the 2020 election cycle, in a big way. Um, maybe not necessarily at a presidential level, but I think definitely at a kind of Senate house level and at a local level is that, you know, and I look at Montana in particular, you cannot be on the wrong side of this issue right now and get elected for a statewide office in Montana. And when I say against, you know, this issue is that if you are for the sale or transfer of public lands or kind of the systematic defunding or, um, just, kind of uh, deterioration, like you're not going to get elected to Montana. And I think that's starting to permeate out other places. Um, and, and so I think it's going to be, you know, really important uh, election issue in 2020. Um, so I think that's, and I think that's a good thing. Um, I think that that, you know, I, you know, people care about healthcare, they care about the economy, but as public lands and public waters, I think get elevated to a top tier issue. I think that's a good thing for all the things that you and I care about. Um, there again, there's always going to be differences on how we manage those places, but I think that that's something for us to pay attention to. Um, I think along those lines, I think there's something that that we all need to be paying attention to crystal ball wise is that, you know, this is hunting. I'm not, and I'll just come out and say, I mean, hunting has been dominated by white males for a long time in this country. Mm -hmm. And those demographics are changing in this country and, and I think that we need to recognize that and be welcoming. And so that, you know, organizations and so that, you know, media portraying, like it looks more like the country does. And I say that because, you know, as we want votes and, and that's really ultimately what's going to keep us um, kind of on the up and up for our conservation legacy and help us you know, pass it on to the next generation. I think we really need to be conscious about, you know, looking more like America and much more diversity um, within our ranks, within the hunting and fishing ranks. I think that's starting, um, but I think, you know, crystal ball wise, like, you know, 2020, 2022, 2024, like I just, I just like our community reflect more of what America looks like right now. Yeah. That's a great point. And that'll play very much into the whole issue we were just talking about, which is, hunter numbers declining so much and our influence declining with that. Well, if we aren't willing to welcome different kinds of people into our community, there's no way that our numbers are going to grow. So it's, uh, Absolutely. even though it's the right thing to do and it's also self-serving as well, which is nice that they go in hand in hand. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the, back to what you were just talking about on the uh, the 2020 election side of things and how public lands are becoming a bigger and bigger deal. One of the things around this um, that always causes, I think, people in our community some struggles internally um, that I just kind of want to get 
an idea of how you think about this to kind of help us think about it. Cause, cause I struggle with this too is sure. un- unfortunately um, things are split down party lines in a lot of cases, as we talked about a few minutes ago. And one of the big splits oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes is you're going to get one candidate that is great on public lands and taking care of the, the environment and, and habitat and whatnot but not really good on hunter rights, firearm rights. Then you might have the other candidate that's really good at firearm rights and hunter rights, but not very good on public lands and, uh, and conservation. How do you personally like deal with that internally in your head? Or how do you recommend us dealing with that um, or changing that? Because probably the best solution is just to change that, but I'm not sure if that's going to happen in the short term or not. Sure. Um, so just to be clear, uh, Backcountry hunters and anglers, you know, we're a 501c3, so we can't, you know, tell you who to vote for, endorse candidates, anything like that. Like, we can give you information, so then people can figure that out for themselves, and which we've, you know, done through candidate questionnaires. But we're forbidden as a 501c3 from, you know, endorsing or being part of that political process, um, the election process, I would say. Uh, how do I, like, look at that my, myself? I think I'm... I'm on the second part of that, like where I think we need to force our elected officials to be both good on guns, hunter rights and uh, public lands and conservation. Yeah. And, and I, I, I don't think we should be, I mean, I think I get pretty frustrated when I hear that dichotomy. I know that there's a lot of truth and reality to that. There's also a lot of gray to that as well. And, and when we talk about that in black and white ways, I think we, it feels defeatist a little bit and that we're never going to be able to change it. But I've got plenty of examples, you know, on both sides of the aisle of people that are more in that gray area. And I think that we, the people, need to demand that they're like that. And, you know, I think, you know, I'm born and raised here in Montana, so I know Montana best. But, you know, our elected officials, like I said, uh, at a statewide level, they're both good on guns and hunter rights as well as public lands and conservation. And there's nuances to each side of that. but you know, I mean, Democrats, if they're, if they're, if they're, uh, anti second amendment in this state, they're not going to win at a, at a, at a state level. Um, if you're a Republican and you, um, you know, are, have draconian ideas about public lands and how they should be managed, you're not going to win a statewide race. And so I think that didn't happen because they woke up one day and they're like, ah, that's a good idea. That happened by people on the ground demanding what, you know, those things from them. And so to me, I think that gives me hope for other parts of the country. And, you know, it goes back to the thing I said earlier in this conversation is that, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And if you are demanding of your politicians that you can't be one or the other, you have to be both. I think we have a much better chance. Um, Do I think that's going to happen in the short term? Probably not. Um, Do I think that there's always going to be, you know, there's always going to be people on one far side, you know, on the left or on the far side on the right, that's always going to be there. But man, I, I got to think that the majority of this country is more in the middle and we just have to demand it. And I think we'd be in a lot, much better place if we did. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's how I tend to, to think and, and hope and, and look towards the future with, with hope that we can, that we can do that. And I think, you know, S 47, the Dingle Johnson act, I think is just, again, saying that again, but I just think it's, it's a great example for us to point to and saying, Hey, we can make some of these changes. We can make a difference. And, and all these things we're talking about that we want to change in the future, like, Hey, if that was possible, so are these things. So, um, 
Absolutely. That's my that's my railing cry at least. Is there is there anything else, Land, before I let you go back to the organized chaos of preparing for rendezvous? Is there any other <laughs> final message or Please final thing? Me. I want to stay on the phone with you. Um, <laughs> I think I mean my final thought, and like you've talked about this a lot, but I just always like to kind of leave with this is again, be proud of living here in America and owning six hundred and forty million acres. You know that that idea, you know, the public landowner, that's not just a slogan. Like that's, that's really a way of life and something unique that we have here in America that no other country in the world has. Um, you know, Canada is a, is probably the closest. And then you go like New Zealand, but really there is no other place like America. Like this is an ideal that, you know, that we should all be proud of and know that with that ownership, it comes responsibility. And, you know, when you own a car, you know, you can't, if you don't care and feed that car, it's eventually going to you know, break down and seize up way before it would have if you would have cared and feed it. And so I think that, you know, let's be proud of what we have and then realize that, you know, we need to make sure that we pass it on to the next generation. And that's by being engaged. And that's the thing I'd, you know, I'd like to leave you with is really, you know, that hope and kind of that I'm seeing all across the Midwest in these states that only have, you know, 2% public land or close to it that, man, I went there wondering what I was going to talk about. And I left there being like, oh, my goodness, these folks are on fire and they care about not only what's happening in their own states and trying to you know, grow that public estate, but they know that they own the Bob Marshall Wilderness, you know, that's in my backyard just as much as I do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something for everybody to keep in mind. I mean, I've, I've, I've been up to Alaska a couple of times at, for meetings, but never recreated up there and maybe never will. I hope I will. But. Like that belongs to me and you just like it does anybody else, you know, and it might, I might not ever get there, but boy, is it a place that I dream about and having it there and just knowing there's a place that's that big and that wild is pretty awesome to me. And so, um, for anybody listening to this, man, you own 640 acres, be prideful about that, understand where it came, came from and then do everything you can to protect it going forward. Yeah. I think, uh, I think that's a great, a great thing to, to send us home on. And, uh, man, I just want to thank you land for being such a great leader of this movement there through BHA. But I think you've also not just of that organization, but, but really you've done a great job of, of standing up and and being a, a figurehead for this larger movement and really railing hunters and anglers and putting a hand, giving a hand out and not giving a hand out, but reaching a hand out to other folks and saying, Hey, let's all work together. You've, you've led by example on that. And, um, personally that's been encouraging to see and i think for a lot of other folks too so uh so thanks for what you're doing and I, i'm really glad that you're going to be helping us all move forward in the future too mark uh very kind and humbling words i appreciate that i think i'd, I'd throw back i mean to you that you know with this podcast you have a gigantic bully pulpit as you know it's what roosevelt used to call like the presidency right like he's got this awesome megaphone that he gets to use and I think what you and everybody else over at Mediator is doing, like you guys have a gigantic bully pulpit right now. And I, you know, I'm super stoked to be kind of in that arena with you all. Um, and, and, and really, you know, the reason that I talk about this kind of public lands revolution is really because folks like you are spreading that message. So um, the thank you goes right back to you. Uh, we got a lot of stuff to do together, Mark. Um, and uh, at some point we'll be celebrating together. Um, and uh, I look forward to those days, but uh, please keep up the good work as well on your end. Sounds great, Land. Good luck uh, with the rendezvous. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be one heck of a party. <laughs> I wish I was going to be there. Next year I will be. Next year I will be. Good. All right.
Thanks, Land. And that, my friends, is the end of this episode. Just want to give another big thanks to Land Tawny. And uh, if you're interested in learning more about Land and what BHA is up to, you can visit backcountryhunters.org. And uh, become a member, too. If you're not already, highly recommend it. I'm a member. I'm also on the board for our Michigan chapter. It's just a really, really great group of folks to work with in an issue that, as far as I'm concerned, is just about second to none. So with all that said, thank you for tuning in. Thanks for being the kind of folks, the kind of guys and girls that stand up for these kinds of things, whether it be public lands or the future of our deer herds or private land conservation, clean air, clean water the right to hunt and fish. I mean, all these things are around because folks in the past stood up for them. And I'm confident that folks like you are the ones who are going to continue doing that in the future. And I'm just a damn proud person here today, knowing that you're a part of this Wired Hunt community. So thank you. Have a great weekend and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.